Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be starting off by talking about theme parks. Uh, just before we started recording, Robert and I were talking about possible alternative theme parks that just never got to be. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, we've got Disneyland and Disney World uh, that uh, we know some people here in the office that are really into Disney World. Oh, yeah. They go all the time. Uh, but it's based on all these classic animated characters, right? And I was thinking there should be an alternative theme park that's based on the classic animated characters, not of Disney, but of Don Bluth. Okay, so this would be like the Secret of Nim. Yeah, so you got like a Secret of Nim ride where you you like ride this cinder block to the Lee of the Stone, mm-hmm. and then you've got uh, you've got like characters walking around in the streets, of course, in costumes. So Rockadoodle comes up to you. I don't know Rockadoodle. There, there's an All Dogs Go to Heaven. You know, you get to be oh. a dog. And go to Dog Hell Ride. That yeah, that was a disturbing portion of that movie. I remember. Yeah, but then also there's got to be a Dragon's Lair ride. Oh, because yeah. Don Bluth worked on that. That's too. right. This is the, the the classic animation style video game. Yeah, where you die no matter what you do all the time. Oh yeah, we could have one for Rankin and Bass, uh, uh-huh. Ralph Bakshi. Get into all those old uh, cool uh, Disney alternative animated uh, classics like The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, uh, Goblin Singalongs. Yeah, I'm all, all for. There's a whip. There's a way. I'm all for it. <laughs> and you have one hall that's just for singing along with that Leonard Nimoy song about the <laughs> Hobbit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Got to work that in somehow. Though that that's not actually in the movie, but the, the movie itself is full full of all sorts of uh, wonderful tunes. Um, it's interesting because we have all of these various r- ridiculous and real theme parks, and then we have these fictional ones. So we we have made up parks like Jurassic Park. We have Westworld. We have Itchy and Scratchy Land. But on the other hand, we do have Dollywood. <laughs> yeah, the Dolly Parton-themed yeah. theme park. I don't think I've ever been to Dollywood, but you got to wonder what's there. Is it just the same stuff? Like it's just roller coasters and carnival games and stuff, except it's Dolly Parton-themed? Well, it's all about the theme, right? It's all about the fluff. Uh, yeah. Like I, I remember uh, – I, I never went to Dollywood, but I went to Opryland in Nashville, Tennessee – uh, yeah. Back when that was a theme park, a country music, sort of country-themed theme park. And uh, and that was fun. It wasn't necessarily that I was into the uh, in, into the, the, the flavoring that was provided, but still, the, the basic rides, uh, you do need some reason to get on there. You, you, you need some sort of character associated with it to tell a story with the ride. Dude, that Dollywood Jolene roller coaster was a scream. <laughs> so there are a lot of worthy theme park destinations out there. But here's one that I think most of us may not have heard of. I had not heard of this one until we started researching this episode. I had not heard of this until you sent it to me. It's nestled in the Swiss Alps. Okay. And it's called Jungfrau Park. Okay. Does that mean young woman? Uh, I believe so. It's named for um, uh, it's named for a particular uh, alpine peak in oh, the okay. immediate area. It originally opened as Mystery Park, though. Uh, it offers fun and entertainment for the entire family, including Mistyland for the children, a huge indoor-outdoor children's paradise, Segway rides, trampolines, laser shows, a petting zoo, and of course, multiple exhibits and live shows addressing the mysteries of ancient history and the possible answers to be found in ancient astronaut hypothesis. What? Yes. 
Yeah, this is – I need to drive this home. This is not some silly skit that Joe and I have pre- prepared for everybody. This is a real theme park in Interlaken, Switzerland, centered around the ideas and writings of Eric von Daniken, author of the 1968 book Chariots of the Gods. I like how the original book title ends in a question mark. <laughs> yes. So I, I really think we should make a point when we're talking about his book, we should we should pronounce it Chariots of the Gods. Of the Gods? Like they might be chariots of somebody else's. <laughs> I, I also love how it takes what is otherwise a tremendously awesome title mm-hmm. and kind of screws it up by making it a question. You know, you've got that standard clickbait format these days where like the actual body text of an article might be fairly reasonable, but the headline makes some outlandish claim not justified by the article itself. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the opposite. This yes. is like the title is actually a little bit more careful than the book. Yes, and we will definitely get into that as we uh, proceed. But uh, this particular park, again, it opened as Mystery Park in 2003 uh, at a reported cost of 86 million Swiss francs or 62 million dollars American. Uh-huh. Uh, but then it closed in 2006. Then it opened, reopened again in 2009 as Jungfrau Park. It, its uh, exhibits still focus on things like the Nazca Lines, the construction of the pyramids, and other noted uh, quote-unquote examples of um, ancient astronaut speculation or AAS. Uh, plus, Van Doniken himself still gives lectures there and insists that, quote, everything ends in a question mark. Oh, okay. So as if it's all just a consideration of these ideas rather than, uh, you know, propaganda about it. Well, I must say that makes me feel a little bit better about it because I kind of want to go. I don't put any <laughs> stock whatsoever in the ancient aliens hypothesis, but this sounds like a good time. You got a petting zoo yeah. and you got a guy giving lectures about how aliens probably talk to our ancestors. Yeah, there's a sun sphere. They have like a ziggurat and a pyramid. Uh-huh. Uh, you can, you can, I'll try to make sure that we link to the homepage for the park uh, so that you can check it out because it, it does look fun. It looks, you can, children can have their birthday parties there. It looks like an interesting destination, Mm -hmm. and we would love to hear from anyone who has ever gone there themselves. So I've been familiar with uh, Van Doniken for a long time. I remember seeing him mentioned on old reruns of In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy on uh, A&E. But I I had no idea that this had been incorporated into a theme park. This is the kind of thing you come to expect from religious groups in the United States, like uh, the Holy Lands theme park, I believe it is, in in Florida. Oh, yeah. If you're not aware of this phenomenon in the United States, there are multiple – uh, not just Bible-themed, but specifically young earth creationist theme parks in the United States mm-hmm. that have like models and exhibits. It's sort of like a cross between an amusement park and a museum attempting to promote the idea, for example, that humans and dinosaurs lived side by side and that the earth is 6,000 years old. Yeah, and you know, it makes sense that we would have theme parks about this because in the United States, two things that people take very seriously are uh, religion and their major entertainment brands. Mm -hmm. So, of course, there's a Disney park. Of course, there's like Universal Studios. Uh, But I I just really wasn't expecting uh, there to be a theme park based around the, the the concept of ancient aliens. It really gives me hope that my son can one day celebrate his 10th birthday party uh, at a Phantom Time Hypothesis theme park. <laughs> I want a lizard people theme park, oh, right? That would be good, yeah, with the costumes. It basically writes itself. Or a good flat earth theme park. That'll do it. <laughs> I wonder if that means the roller coasters will be very boring, though. There's no real loop <laughs> It's just flat circle. Flat roller coasters, yeah. <laughs> so – 
We've had listeners in the past ask us to talk about ancient aliens-related topics. I think it's come up in passing on the podcast quite a few times, actually. Mm -hmm. We we just kind of mention it here and there as one of those things that, you know, it would be interesting if there were some actual evidence for it, but there doesn't seem to be any good evidence. It's all just kind of like based on massive overinterpretation of little tidbits of interesting mythology and imagery from the ancient world yeah. and sometimes on outright fraud and and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and we'll get into all that today. I do want to – before we get into it, I, I do want to stress that – we are going to approach this topic like all the topics we can approach with a skeptical mind, but an open mind. Okay, yeah, an open-minded mind. Exactly, yes. <laughs> and while we're going to be talking about uh, about uh, Von Daniken himself and his book uh, at the top of this episode, we are going to get into, say, Carl Sagan's thoughts on uh, the, the possibility of ancient aliens as we progress. And, of course, through all of it, I, it is a an exciting idea. Sure. I mean, it factors into so many different works of fiction that, that we love. It's, uh, it's, it just comes down to the fact that, like you say, the evidence is never there. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, I want to be clear that I find the idea of ancient aliens visiting Earth long ago in the past as fun and interesting as anybody else would. Mm-hmm. It's something that I would love to believe if there were good evidence for it. I mean, that's such a cool idea. Um, and so it's – and it's also not something that I would say is – something we should just dismiss out of hand. Like some people make the argument that, okay, if somebody shows up and says, I've got a new propellantless drive that will get us through space without propellant, some people say, you know, if you're violating the laws of physics, I don't even need to listen to you to begin with. I don't feel like that about ancient aliens. I'd say, okay, this is something that we don't know whether or not aliens exist. Maybe they do. We don't know if they do exist, whether they visited Earth in the past. Maybe they have. There's no reason to rule it out out of hand. So it's at least worth looking at the evidence if somebody thinks they have some. Exactly. So let's return to Chariots of the Gods, uh, the 1968 book by – Eric von Daniken. And the basic idea here is, again, that ancient, that ancient astronauts visited Earth and serve as the sort of god figures of our mythologies and religions, and they wowed us with their technology and taught us to do things like make bread and build pyramids. <laughs> yeah, the two primary activities of human civilization. <laughs> well, they're, they're also – we'll get into especially the pyramid thing more, but they, these are the sort of things that it's easy to look at and say, how did people ever figure this out? Uh-huh. Uh, I've thought about that with bread before you know i'm like yeah this is amazing it's so tasty and i if you if you, sh- you show me where it came from and i i would i can't imagine ancient people putting that together but of course they did put it together uh do you think aliens were the ones that taught us to drink the milk that comes out of goats and cows oh well, that is that is an, another interesting topic topic i believe julie and i did an episode that got into some of that in the past because there are different theories mm-hmm. regarding how we made this leap one of them uh, one of the theories is that uh, it actually involved a drinking contest, like essentially dares and double dares among ancient people. <laughs> I bet you can't uh, down that glass of of, uh, of sheep's milk. Let's see what happens. Oh, okay. So it would be like drink this crocodile's urine, drink this goat's milk, but then the goat milk was kind of tasty. Yeah. I mean, it, it actually would play into some of these ancient astronaut ideas, like the, the aliens arrive and they're like, hey, you, uh, monkey creature, um, 
can you drink the milk of that other one without becoming <laughs> ill? Let's see what happens. Just doing experiments on yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, so we can't rehash all of Von Daniken's arguments from his book, but I think just to give you a flavor of the kinds of things he argues and and what it feels like to participate with his arguments, we, we should just uh, give an example from several of his major lines of evidence. And one of the major types of arguments he makes is – about ancient projects that supposedly were beyond our power to produce at the time, right? So this is, you know, you mentioned, how did we learn to bake bread? How did we learn to build pyramids? Von Daniken essentially will look back and say, hey, we couldn't have done that back then. Must have been aliens showing us how to do it or assisting us with their technology. So classic example of this you'll often hear is the pyramids of ancient Egypt, right? If you've got an ancient aliens person talking to you, they'll say, look, there's no way the ancient Egyptians could have built the pyramids. These these stones that the pyramids are made of are gigantic. How did they get them to the site? How did they build them with such precision? You know, the, how did they move them so far? It's just impossible. They couldn't have done it, right? Yeah. Why did they build it like that? Why were they looking up? Yeah, Von Daniken makes that argument too. He says the pyramids, are, they seem to be oriented with some kind of relationship to the stars and Egyptian astronomy was not advanced enough for them to have had this kind of like knowledge of the stars when they built them. That seems to be wrong. But yeah, if you look at pyramids like the Great Pyramid of Giza built in the 26th century BCE, it's true that we used to consider it a great mystery how these amazing marvels like the pyramids were built in a time before modern metalworking. I mean, these people didn't have iron tools or anything. They were probably working with like copper tools. Uh, this is really before any kind of advanced wheels of any sort. But as best I can tell, modern archaeologists and Egyptologists do not believe that it was beyond the power of the ancient Egyptians to create these marvels like the pyramids. Uh, we now know a lot about the construction of the pyramids. So the pyramids were built through massive coordination of engineers and skilled workers. Granite building materials were probably floated down the Nile on rafts from quarry locations upstream. Uh, and we've discovered through, for example, ancient illustrations that giant stone blocks were dragged into place using ropes and sledges. So workers would be have ropes and they'd pull a sledge with a stone on it. And there was even a recent discovery about how wetting the sand underneath the sledge could reduce the friction between the sledge and the ground, helping ease the transport of the blocks. And then there's other evidence that indicates, for example, the height of the pyramids was achieved with the use of, wait for it, ramps. <laughs> But where do they get the ramps, Joe? Clearly, aliens. Crazy. No, I mean, it, yeah, how could they have figured out that you could pile Earth up to make a ramp? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so this kind of argumentation, it seems to me to be based on basically just a type of prejudice, prejudice against the abilities of the ancient people. Ancient people might have had less scientific knowledge and less technology than we do, but they weren't stupid. In fact, they were really clever, often more clever than we are, because they had to accomplish their great works with so much less. Yeah, they were not, as the saying goes, standing on the, the shoulders of giants. No, they had, to, they had to be giants themselves in order to do great things. So that's one type of argument. But then you got a couple others. One is like looking at ancient art and saying, well, that depicts aliens and spaceships. So you could look at ancient uh, figurines from Japan and say that looks like an alien in a spacesuit. Or you can look at the Nazca Lines of Peru where Von Daniken says they're, quote, very reminiscent of aircraft parking bays on a modern airport. I look at that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it looks to me like they're giant works of art. 
Yeah. (laughs) This is one of those cases where you're taking several logical leaps to Mm -hmm. get to a a more grandiose explanation. Yeah. And it's not to say that things like the Nazca Lions aren't themselves very interesting and mysterious. Like who did the people who created them think they were making them for? If they're too big for the average human to actually see – uh, they must have had the idea of like gods in the sky or even maybe somehow people traveling in the sky to look down and see them. So, you know, that's not impossible. But there are these mysteries and, and, and they're very interesting. But I don't think you need to jump to this is a landing strip for spacecraft or this is an, you know, an aircraft parking bay. Uh, likewise, another way he looks at ancient art is the Mayan Temple of the Inscriptions at Palenque. Robert, had you ever seen this carving before? Um, if, if I had, I'd forgotten about it. It's it's very cool because you see this individual that's kind of in a reclined position, mm-hmm. uh, and you know I'm not sure how how I would have interpreted it had I not been looking at it uh, as part of the research for this episode, <laughs> like knowing what people would read into it. Because knowing what people would read into it, I look at it and I'm, I'm reminded of H.R. Giger's uh, concept for uh, the pilot that they encounter in Alien, that uh, the giant, uh, you know, the, the Titan character mm-hmm. that is uh, uh, fossilized in this uh, this command chair within the, the crashed alien spaceship. The engineer, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it's sort of a similar reclining pose surrounded by, I don't know, what what you call it, kind of ornate objects that look like, oh, maybe that could be some form of technology. So this carving from this Mayan temple is from uh, the sarcophagus of the Mayan lord Pakal the Great, who lived in the 7th century CE. And from what I've read, the stuff in the carving are common Mayan religious symbols. They're the kinds of things you see on Mayan carvings that indicate things about the Mayan mythology and cosmology. Uh, But, of course, Von Daniken and the ancient aliens people, they say, well, it's got a guy reclining and he's surrounded by all these objects and lines and weird-looking stuff. And so maybe what this is is it's a person who is reclining in a spaceship that's ready for takeoff and they're surrounded by all these technological objects. It's a fun read on a sure. piece of art. I, I love that idea. Uh, but but again, it comes it comes down to the question, is this really the best explanation for what we're looking at here? Yeah, uh, good question again. I, I think the answer is probably no. Uh, and then finally, another line of evidence is, for example, ancient descriptions of things in literature and religion. So we, we, I think we've talked on the podcast before about the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel in the Hebrew Bible. Robert, have, have we done this one before? I know it came up when Christian and I talked about um, John Dee and sort of the various uh, occult ideas about angels because mm-hmm. we talked about how uh, how rad the angels are in the Old Testament you know, oh, with, yeah. with interlocking wheels and uh, a sense of like multiple eyes and strange fires. Yeah, so just to give a brief reading, the author, supposedly the prophet Ezekiel, writes that he had a vision one day. The heavens were opened. Quote, then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. 
Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they moved, they went toward any one of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome, and their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. That is awesome imagery. Yeah. I mean, you can't deny the amazing power of, of, of that description. Yeah, it does. It it sounds and feels like an encounter with something beyond the human experience. Right. And, a god. Yeah. And, and certainly if you want to say it's an alien, that would make sense too. Uh, but are you convinced that, number one, the author really saw this and this isn't merely a composed narrative serving a religious purpose? Uh, number two, if the author did actually see this, that it wasn't a hallucination. Right. One either caused by, you know, quote unquote, natural uh, causes, uh, you know, some sort of religious trance or mm-hmm. the consumption of some sort of psychedelic substance. Mm-hmm. Either one or or just a dream. Yeah. It, or dream too. Mm-hmm. Or pure daydreaming, pure imagination. We've talked about that before too. We, we, we often want to limit just the pure imagination of ancient peoples and say, oh, well, they actually saw something or clearly they were eating strange mushrooms. Uh, but really, you you can – I think everyone around us can attest to this. You can create amazing things without bumping your head or uh, or uh, or eating something odd. I totally agree. I, I always want to emphasize that point. Uh, and then finally, are you convinced even if this was something physical the author actually saw, was it aliens? Maybe it's something else being described in a kind of vague and imaginative way. So Von Daniken is convinced. He says, quote, The description is astonishingly good. Ezekiel says that each wheel was in the middle of another one, an optical illusion. To our present way of thinking, what he saw was one of those special vehicles that Americans use in the desert and swampy terrain. Ezekiel observed that the wheels rose from the ground simultaneously with the winged creatures. He was quite right. Naturally, the wheels of a multipurpose vehicle, say an amphibious helicopter, do not stay on the ground when it takes off. What do you think of that read, Robert? So the idea is, is he beheld an alien in a, in a, in a fan boat, a swamp boat. Right, in okay. Bayou Billy. Okay. It's alien Bayou Billy. Well, that kind of, that kind of kicks the, uh, the wind out of this for me, if I think of it as that. <laughs> I, I like the idea of it just being interlocking cosmic wheels with eyeballs all over the place. I like that too. Uh, Von Daniken also argues that it must have been aliens and not gods, Ezekiel is describing, because, quote, Ezekiel gives precise details of the landing of this vehicle. He describes a craft that comes from the north, emitting rays and gleaming and raising a gigantic cloud of desert sand. Now, the God of the Old Testament was supposed to be omnipotent. Then why does this almighty God have to come hurtling up from a particular direction? Cannot he be anywhere he wants without all this noise and fuss? Now, I have to say again, I don't really buy that argument at all because it strikes me as a pretty shallow and uninformed reading of the Old Testament. I think the Bible is full of references to God and other divine beings having physical bodies and physical limitations and being subject to normal corporeal existence. Like, remember after Adam and Eve eat at the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, the book of Genesis says that they, quote, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
So yeah. he's walking in the garden and he can't see them if they hide. Well, this is one of the points that uh, Julian Jaynes made about the Bible, taking into account both Testaments, is that in the beginning, things are very physical Mm-hmm. And then they become less physical as you progress. Uh, God begins as something that is seen and, and nearly felt. Yeah. Uh, and then he becomes something that is occasionally seen and only heard. And then the then it's a voice that one is, is longing for, one is reaching and grasping for. Well, I, I would absolutely agree that there appears to be a chronological progression over the history of religion of the steady abstracting of religious beings – uh, like a long, long ago, if you look into the most ancient religions, there does not seem to be a problem with a vision of ancient angels approaching from the north and blowing up a lot of dust and causing a physical disturbance when they arrive. Um, I mean, I've talked about this on the show before. I think this clear distinction that we make between aliens and gods is sort of a post-enlightenment distinction informed by scientific thinking and discovery and ideas about physics and biology. And I don't think that distinction would necessarily make a whole lot of sense to all of the people of the ancient world, right? Yeah, and an, an Old Testament angel might show up and you might need to invite it into your house or wrestle it uh, out <laughs> out in the uh, the yard, uh, that, that sort of thing. Or yeah, likewise, exactly. the gods of the Greeks are taking physical form and seeking to engage in intercourse with human beings. Exactly. So so we think like, okay, gods are ethereal supernatural beings. They exist outside our space-time universe. They're free from the bounds of the laws of physics. And meanwhile, aliens are biological organisms like us. You know, they, they're from some other planet. They may have powerful biological or technological abilities that we don't have, but they're bound by the laws of physics. And I, I just don't get a lot of this distinction when you read ancient literature. When you read these ancient religious texts, you don't get the feeling that this distinction necessarily would have been salient to them. Gods often had physical bodies. Like you say, they could be injured or killed. They lived in distant but physically solid places in the mountains or in the sky, which they believed there was ground in the sky that mm-hmm. you could walk around. They could be bound. That would be like the, the ultimate doom for a, a, a god of Olympus to be bound somewhere. Absolutely. Prometheus, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and speaking of Prometheus, here's one of the craziest things. Many of the gods, not not always, but many of the gods in ancient religions – clearly get their power not from some kind of supernatural nature, but from artifacts that they possess, essentially some kind of ancient vision of a technology, right? They've got some thing that gives them power, just like a technological alien would. Yeah, magical items. So anyway, th- that wraps up my basic description of, uh, of, of the flavor of Von Daniken's type of arguments. I, I think we can already see a lot of the flaws within it, but I think it's worth exploring more the history of how this idea developed and what a better version of this type of hypothesis might be. The thing about Chariots of the Gods, uh, however, is that it is an essential book to discuss because it definitely launched uh, uh, ancient astronaut uh, speculation into the public consciousness. Absolutely, yeah. It emerged, it, it, it came along, I think, really at just the right time. Yeah. Uh, because this is a, a period of time we've discussed on the show before, a period of rapid technological change in the second half of the 20th century. You know, remember it was published in 1968. Mm-hmm. So just think of all the things that are going on. You know, we are reaching out into space. We are, we are, we are reaching for the moon. We're sending out probes to study the cosmos and even bring work of our existence to potential other forms of life out there. I mean, this is the same energy that's going to lead to the establishment of SETI in 1981. Mm -hmm. 
But it was also a period of time in which supernatural experiences took a decidedly sci-fi turn in many cases. Yes. Entailing UFO sightings, alien abduction experiences that we have uh, whole episodes about here. And Von Donneken's book took the notion of alien-inspired alternative archaeology and ancient alien visitors and propelled it into the mainstream consciousness, first as a book and then as various spinoff bits of media. And we, we should be clear here. Von Donneken popularized the notion, but he was not the originator. Well, it depends. No, no, you're you're right about that. He he was not the originator. I was gonna say I was gonna make a distinction between fiction and nonfiction, but I'd say even in nonfiction, not necessarily the originator. Right. So one of the sources we we looked to in this was a, a Skeptic magazine article titled "Charioteer of the Gods" by Jason uh, Colavito. And uh, he points out that you had sci-fi writers such as and specifically H.P. Lovecraft exploring the idea of ancient aliens visiting the Earth and uh, being basically the, the responsible agents for our various achievements and our very existence. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're not familiar with Lovecraft's alien, ancient aliens mythos, uh, just to read a quote from Call of Cthulhu that also appears in Colavito's article, quote, there had been eons when other things ruled on the earth, and they had had great cities. Remains of them were still to be found as Cyclopean stones on islands in the Pacific. They all died vast epochs of time before men came, but there were arts which could revive them when the stars had come round again to the right positions in the cycle of eternity. They had, indeed, come themselves from the stars and brought their images with them. And, of course, the original title for that, uh, that story by H.P. Lovecraft was The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, but the Call of Edo even goes so far as to, to line up the 1960s European popularity of Lovecraft's fiction with the publication of The Chariots of the Gods. Yeah, that's totally right. I mean, we should mention Morning of the Magicians. Oh, yes. So I, I've never read it, but I'm, I'm familiar with it uh, by reputation. This was an, a 1960 book by Louis Paulus and Jacques Bergier. Uh, and this is a book that I actually learned about on the DVD special features for the Nazi zombie film Shockwaves from <laughs> 1977, which is, if you haven't seen it, a fabulous film uh, with Nazi zombies in Florida. And it was inspired, at least in part, by The Morning of the Magicians, which supposedly also gets into, uh, you know, ideas and conspiracies related to uh, Nazi interest in the occult. Oh, Yeah. Well, I mean, so Colavito points out that this book, Morning of the Magicians, was inspired directly by Lovecraft's fiction as the authors were actually editors of a French magazine called Planet or Planet, mm -hmm. I guess, uh, which printed French translations of Lovecraft throughout the 60s. In Traces of the Gods, Ancient Astronauts as a Vision of Our Future, Jonas Richter points out several additional precursors here. Mm -hmm. uh, so possible first ancient astronaut speculation concept in sci-fi comes from Edison's Conquest of Mars by Garrett P. Service, published in 1898. I never heard of this. No, I, I had not either. And uh, the, it basically discusses the idea that the pyramids were built by Martians. Okay. Uh, there's also an 1897 novel by Kurt Lasvitz uh, that explored this sort of contact between uh, uh, interplanetary cultures. Okay. Uh, and of course, he points out Lovecraft. Uh, but then there's also uh, Perry Roden, uh, a German science fiction series running since 1961. And it apparently gets into some of these ideas as well. So it seems like especially if you go into the fiction realm, the 1960s were full of ancient astronaut stuff. Yeah, it's just uh, Von Donneken 
had the the book that really just took it and propelled it into the mainstream. Now, of course, this ended up making its way into other fictional properties that were even more mainstream, like movies. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, just to, to name a, a few here, uh, I, I probably the, the the greatest example is 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, I never think of that as an ancient alien story, but that it is what it is, right? The yeah, idea, yeah. yeah, so there's a there's a monolith that appears on Earth at some point during our evolution and sparks this revolution in tool use among our ancient ancestors. Yeah, and it's it's uh, one of the reasons we don't think about it much is because it is such a a, a thoughtful and intelligent treatment of the concept. Mm-hmm. And we'll actually get into to it when we start discussing Sagan's uh, Carl Sagan's thoughts on ancient alien speculation because some of the things that he say might might take place given a situation like this line up directly with the plot of 2001. But then you have you have other uh, um, films as well. For instance, God Told Me To, the uh, Larry Cohen film oh, about yeah. uh, Christ-like hermaphroditic aliens uh, that, that definitely has an ancient aliens vibe to it. Uh, of course, the, the Ridley Scott film Prometheus okay. is, uh, yeah. is, is, is rich with, uh, with ancient alien speculation as well. I didn't see this film, but uh, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull gets into this as well, right? Is this an ancient aliens uh, speculation film? Yeah, it is. Uh, easily the weakest of the Indiana Jones movies. I think explicitly because Indiana Jones, it didn't need to go into the sci-fi realm. I, I think it works best when it's integrated deeply with Earth-based mythology. Yeah, I agree. Like the, the Ark of the Covenant is terrifying and awesome in uh, in Raiders because – you don't know what it is. It is this mysterious supernatural thing. And hey, maybe it is alien in nature, but it is it is either – it's so strange that it is alien either way. Mm-hmm. Also, the CGI gopher didn't help. <laughs> um, uh, now, one of my favorites uh, that I, I almost didn't think to include is The Life of Brian, the Monty <sighs> Python uh, uh, religious epic. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a brief alien interlude, I recall. Yeah, there's like a chase sequence uh, with the character of Brian, and he is accidentally abducted by aliens and goes on a brief adventure. And it, it's so perfect because it's so accidental. The aliens don't seem to be trying to do anything. They just sort of happen to – run into the story for a little bit and then they're out of it and no knowledge is gained like there's no there's no wisdom imparted upon Brian by this experience it just no. scares the crap out of him I don't know this for sure but I'm going to speculate that the reason that is in the film is simply because somebody wanted to create some alien spaceships and alien sets and and alien costumes and they wanted a way to fit it in. So they just said, oh, let's have them get abducted for a couple minutes. Yeah, I'm glad glad they got to make it because it does seem like the kind of situation where producers might say – is this necessary to the script? Because we could cut this whole alien thing and then we don't have to build a spaceship uh-huh. or an extraterrestrial and we could cut down on maybe a, you know at least a day's worth of filming. And then Terry Gilliam's like, I already built it. <laughs> uh, there are also less memorable films uh, that we might mention. Uh, Stargate. I, I say less memorable, <laughs> but I, I definitely remember an Egyptian god having his, his head teleported off yeah. in, that, in that film. That was at least one awesome quality kill. Yeah, the best thing about it, I recall, is like uh, is like attack by edge of teleportation zone. <laughs> of course, the fifth element has uh, ancient uh, aliens uh, plot element oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. And uh, and for any of our even doc- pyramids. Oh yeah, 
That's right. And speaking of pyramids, uh, I, here's one something for our, our, our Doctor Who uh, listeners out there. If you're a fan of the uh, the, the old Doctor Who episodes, there was a, an episode called uh, Pyramids of Mars that has some ancient alien speculation um, uh, intrigue in it. And there's this this wonderful moment where this uh, like Egyptian deity servant steps out of the like a portal and says, "I bring Sutek's gift of death to all humanity." <laughs> And, of course, there are plenty of other examples in uh, film and literature that we could bring up. And we would love to hear from you, the listeners, what your favorite uh, bits of fictional ancient astronaut uh, intrigue happen to be. But clearly it's been a very uh, inspiring idea to many people. Like it's something that caught on fast and we haven't let go of since. Now, mention of Prometheus uh, is key here, and we've already touched on both the movie and the actual uh, character, the the titan Prometheus who brought fire uh, to the ancient uh, Greeks in, uh-huh. uh, in, in the myth. And it's interesting because we, we see this motif time and time again, uh, a myth in which a god or a demigod gifts a technology to ancient people. Uh, these are frequently referred to as culture bearers. So we have Prometheus, the fire bringer. Uh, in Chinese mythology, we have uh, Su Jin, the fire driller, who who fulfills the same role, mm-hmm. brings the technology of fire to mortals. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I have to admit that, that even though I don't personally put a lot of of, of stock or faith in uh, in AAS, I, I still read these accounts or look at visual interpretations. And part of me always thinks, oh, yeah, it was totally an ancient alien. That, <laughs> it, just, it just makes sense. What else would Prometheus be? But, of course, this is always flawed logic because I, I feel like one of the big things to drive home here is that gods in our myths are not merely mislabeled aliens. Rather, I think it's the reverse. Aliens are essentially rebranded gods. I agree with you 100% on that. I think you're exactly right. Our visions of aliens come from our mythological visions of gods, and they, they continually are influenced by them. I mean, think of the way the movie Prometheus is echoing all of these uh, echoing all of these themes from Greek myth. Yeah, exactly. I guess we need to take a break, don't we? Yes, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Now, Robert, you mentioned, I think, that you'd actually seen some of these ancient alien shows that they show on, what, the History Channel or one of those one of those subsidiary <laughs> networks. I have never watched any of the ancient alien shows, but I did see Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of, or at least okay. reruns of it, on A&E okay. back in the late 90s. Was that the like, sort of the proto-ancient aliens? In a way, I remember them exploring topics like this and, uh, and, and also stuff like Bigfoot. Was Bigfoot an alien as well? Probably. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I, want to – I'm going to drop a fact on you. Okay. We'll see how you deal with this. Did you know that Ancient Aliens is still on? It's still making new episodes. It's currently on season 13. Wow. You think, yeah, how do you like them apples? <laughs> it's it's. I mean, having looked at some of the examples that are frequently brought up, there are a lot of there are a number of examples that uh-huh. are used that are brought up to support uh, uh, ancient alien speculation. But it seems like you'd run out of the really good ones by at least season eight. Yeah. Yeah. God. I mean, it, not to say that ancient aliens is not a fun idea. It's fun to speculate about, fun mm-hmm. to play with. But given that I, I think you and I agree that there's really no good evidence anywhere, how do they get that far? Yeah, I think it's it's safe to say that they don't get that get to this point by uh, you know through through anything resembling accurate, balanced consideration of scientific fact or archaeological fact. They're basically writing documentary fiction, right? Yeah. 
Uh, Brian uh, Swidick described the show in Smithsonian Magazine as what, quote, what you would get if you dropped some creationist propaganda, uh, Eric Von Donneken's Chariots of the Gods, and stock footage from Jurassic Fight Club into a blender. <laughs> what results is a slimy and incomprehensible mixture of idle speculation and outright fabrications. Now, he's discussing an episode of the Ancient Aliens show, I think, where they they're they're talking about dinosaurs. Okay. I read this I read this article and he says that there's basically they've got all their quote experts on talking about how aliens might have wiped out the dinosaurs in order to make room for humankind to ascend. Oh. And so they've got animations of dinosaurs <laughs> running away from spaceships that are blasting them and stuff. It does feel a lot like creationist propaganda at that point where you're just especially when you start using the dinosaurs you know because I feel like then you're really you're trying to get to the children that's true it's despicable and unfair it's like using cartoon characters on cigarettes yeah yeah that's that's why just the other day I found a creationist uh, book in a lending library Uh at at a state park and I, I moved it directly from the lending library to a trash can. And it was such a satisfying <laughs> moment. You know, some of those creationist books, though, have some good illustrations in them well, that I, that's that I the really thing, enjoy. Yeah. The, the illustrations are great. I just uh, – I, I feel like there should be a warning label uh-huh. on the front, uh, that, you know, letting you know that this is uh, – this is not science. Now, there was one I'm trying to remember. I think it might have been a creationist book by Dwayne Gish, but I'm, I'm not positive. Anyway, it's it depicts a dinosaur. I think it's a Parasaurolophus. Parasaur, mm-hmm. How do you say that one? Parasaurolophus. Okay. This, that's the that way, one. That's the way my son says it. And anyway. He's usually better at dinosaur name pronunciation than, than me. In the illustration, it's breathing fire on a T-Rex. It's <laughs> just like, yeah, that one, it breathes fire. <laughs> Well, that explains the yeah the complex nasal uh, composition. So anyway, back to chariots of the gods. Okay, uh, we've recently discussed some beautifully presented hypotheses by writers such as Julian Jaynes and Leonard and Leonard Schlein. Uh, you know, that, that make a case for something that uh, that you might not accept completely. You know, it's maybe taking a, a radical approach to our interpretation of the past mm-hmm. and to just how humans interact with with ideas. Chariots of the Gods is not on the same level with these books. In fact, I would say that the author Von Donneken most reminds me of is probably L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> and I say that as somebody who who picked up L. Ron Hubbard with an open mind, saying, mm-hmm. you know, well, all right, this this is this is a book that means a lot to a fair number of people. I want to see what there is to get excited about. In the introduction alone, uh, Von Donneken immediately goes into attack mode on anyone who might disagree with his notion that archaeological and religious evidence definitely supports the idea that ancient aliens visited the earth and kickstarted humans uh, from the, 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 the ape level. Uh, and I feel like I actually have to read just a little bit of it here. He said, he writes, quote, It took courage to write this book, and it will take courage to read it. Because its theories and proofs do not fit into the mosaic of traditional archaeology, constructed so laboriously and firmly cemented down, scholars will call it nonsense and and put it on the index of those books which are better left unmentioned. Laymen will withdraw into the snail shell of their familiar world when faced with the probability that finding out about our past will be even more mysterious and adventurous than finding out about the future. (laughs) <laughs> so, you, and that continues for for paragraphs afterwards as well, uh-huh. where he's, it, I mean, it's, he's, he's not there, saying. There are exclamation points in it. Yes, yeah, he's not making, he's not saying, I have an interesting idea, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but I'd like you to think about it. He's saying, look, let's just get this out of the way. If you're not down with this idea, you're a coward. 
Well, I mean, we should try to be critical of ourselves and cr- skeptical of the skeptical mindset, right? But yeah. we, I mean, we we discuss and entertain radical hypotheses and strange ideas. We try to bring a skeptical mind to them, say, okay, are they actually presenting any good evidence or not? Uh, right, and we will, and we'll give it that a, give it that a fa- fair shake here. I mean, we are giving it a fair shake here, but. But I also have to say, like, there's there's something in the way that the idea is presented in the book that I think does not give ancient alien speculation uh, – it uh, doesn't do it any favors because it immediately feels a bit um, aggressive. Yes. Now, I uh, I looked back to see like, a little bit more about what the uh, the immediate reaction was to uh, was to the book and how it was received in the, the years to follow. And I, I found a, a really interesting New York Times review by a critic, uh, Richard uh, Lingaman. Uh, this was from 1974, and he really put the screws to the book uh, while also I, uh, highlighting Von Donneken's background as a convicted embezzler, fraud, and forger. Oh, so here are a few uh, a, a few uh, highlights from the review. Okay. Quote, his method is to use a negative. Ancient peoples couldn't have done or thought all the things they did to prove a positive, that the ancient people were the beneficiaries of some kind of cosmological point four program. <laughs> Quote, Von Donneken's evidence is that of an enthusiastic amateur, not scholar, an amateur with an axe to grind. There is a tendentiousness in his book that lies in an urgent recurring motif, a running complaint against the, quote, high priests of organized religion who, along with the archaeologists, refuse to admit the truth as von Daniken has revealed it. Actually, most modern religion is not anti-scientific, though it might be – might well be anti-von Daniken. The two aren't synonymous. As for archaeologists, I suspect that their professional tendency is to chip away at the potsherds of truth rather than make cosmic leaps of faith into outer space. And then he goes on to say, ironically, for a man who is almost gaga about space science, much of what Van Daniken purveys depends upon ancient religious myths, specifically the recurring references to skyborne gods. We come full circle. The man who seeks to overturn the religious explanation of man's origins goes not to scientific evidence, but to the Bible and Ezekiel's fiery wheels. Now, to push back against that somewhat, I, I would say, though, it would be very hard to be conclusive about the idea that Earth had been visited by aliens if all you had to go on was literature. I would say that in many cases, if it actually did happen, the only evidence we might have would be literature. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And as, as we'll discuss later on, um, Carl Sagan said as much as well. That yeah. This is where we would find the evidence. Carl Sagan is a, a bit more cautious in uh, determining what uh, – I'd say a lot more cautious. Yeah, a lot more cautious in in determining like what could possibly uh, be identified as evidence. But still, he admits that like this is what we have. We have this – this is – when you look back on on ancient peoples and the records they left, you're going to get religion. You're going to get myth. But this is also – you know, you see what he's doing here is he's operating off of unanswered questions and then immediately navigating to a speculative answer. I mean you see this in all kinds of people who are trying to prove radical and speculative hypotheses where they take a thing that, you know, take an unknown. Like we don't know how they built the pyramids. And back in the 60s and 70s, that was largely true. I mean, we might have had some good hypotheses, but it was like, oh, wow, you know, there was this feat accomplished in the ancient world. How could they have done it? And so because that ends in a question mark and it's a mystery, now you have license to say, well, if we don't know, then it must have been X. And that's exactly what you can't do. 
So Van Daniken, he makes some pretty broad uh, assertions about the archaeological evidence he presents. You know, it's not so much that the Baghdad battery might have been a battery. No, it was a battery. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not that the the Japanese dogu sculptures um, kind of look like they they're spacesuits, but they you know they're definitely representations of spacesuits. Yes, they are spacemen, and they do look really cool. And and the the, the thing is, in any of these various uh, bits of evidence that are brought up, the ones that you know aren't fraudulent in, in nature. They are fascinating. Even the ones that are fraudulent in nature, we could potentially do a whole episode on. Uh, but it's it's it, to to hold them up then as proof of of ancient aliens is uh, you know is a, is a step beyond. All right, so I think we've had a we've we've had a, enough time with uh, with chariots of the gods. Uh, let's take a break, <laughs> and when we come back, we will see what Carl Sagan had to say about all of this. All right, we're back. Now, we've been discussing Eric Von Daniken, Chariots of the Gods, the ancient <laughs> alien speculation, uh, and a lot of the problems with it. But one thing that this got me wondering about is I, I'm reading Von Daniken. I'm thinking th- this argumentation is not very good. Uh, a lot of the evidence seems very shaky. What would a good, well-presented case for ancient alien speculation look like? What would it look like if a responsible, thoughtful, skeptical scientist approached the question and tried to put together the best possible case for it? Yeah, because a lot of times it seems like you have two types of people looking at it. You have like quasi-religious advocates of ancient aliens and then you have uh, skeptics that are in here just to tear it down. You know, they're, they're, they don't seem like they would even entertain any of the ideas. Like who would be the person to maybe not take the middle ground but at least approach it with, with skeptical open-mindedness? Yeah, not middle ground but just giving it a fair skeptical shake. Yeah, and, and luckily this is where Carl Sagan enters the picture uh, because uh, in the book Intelligent Life in the Universe, uh, Sagan teamed up with uh, Soviet – astrophysicist Josef Shlosky. And uh, indeed, in the book, they do consider – they consider a number of uh, possibilities uh, concerning uh, uh, aliens and the, the possible existence of aliens. Uh, but they do specifically look at the idea of ancient aliens as well. They get into it pretty late in the book, but here are some of the, the basic ideas they present. Uh-huh. So they say that if, if interstellar travel is technically possible – then it is, quote, likely to be developed by a civilization substantially in advance of our own. That kind of makes sense. We're not ready for interstellar travel yet. Yeah. And uh, and they argue that if you have a, a technologically advanced uh, group like this, the enterprise of space travel is simply going to be too rewarding for them to give up. They're mm-hmm. just – they're going to – to expand beyond their own planet. I think maybe you could argue with that, but mm-hmm. then again, uh, I don't know. I think it's fair to assume that there's an exploratory nature in most organisms. Yeah, I mean, certainly when we come back, we always come back, of course, around to the idea that we have to look to our only example of life and intelligent life, and that's mm-hmm. an intelligent life, and that's us, and therefore we tend to think, well, they would do what we do, yeah. which is enlightening and at times horrifying. Well, okay. So if you try to reason backwards, you say if an organism has intelligence, it can probably move, right? And moving organisms tend to be either like hunting or foraging types Mm -hmm. of organisms. They're not just going to be sitting there and photosynthesizing. Uh, So if they have to seek out types of food, then they probably have some kind of exploration instinct. I don't know. I mean, that's very rough, but trying to get there. 
No, no, I, 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 th- I think you're right. So they, they say that if interstellar space flight is feasible, uh, then technological civilizations of the galaxy will be uh, an intercommunicating whole, but that the communication will be sluggish. So at this point, uh, Sagan uh, and Schlossky, they, they, they do some math and they determine that, quote, if contacts are made on a purely random basis, each star should be visited about once every 10 to the fifth power years, or I believe that's, what, 100,000 years. Yeah. Furthermore, quote, each commutative technological civilization should be visited by another such civilization about once every thousand years. Huh. So you see where this is going, right? Given their assumptions. Yes. So they say that it's possible then that a starship might have come by the planet during the earliest stages of intelligent life on Earth. And that it's uh, therefore possible that, yes, an, an extraterrestrial civilization could have visited the planet within historical times. Okay, with you so far. All right. However, uh, this is an important uh, caveat they lay out here. Quote, there are no reliable reports of direct contact with an extraterrestrial civilization during the last few centuries when critical scholarship and non-superstitious reasoning have been fairly widespread. Any earlier contact story must be encumbered with some degree of fanciful embellishment due simply to the views prevailing at the time of the contact. The extent to which subsequent variation and embellishment alters the basic fabric of the account varies with time and circumstance. And so they point to an example made by historian uh, uh, Mercier Eliade in The Myth of the Eternal Return or Cosmos in History. And this is, this is an excellent book that I've referenced on the show several times before. This is where you get into the idea of the, the terror of history uh, and uh, cyclical versus linear time. Mm-hmm. But Eliade pointed out just how supernaturally elaborate, elaborated a simple Romanian romantic tragedy became. So it became it, – it, it transformed into a story of ancient magical myth within the subject's own lifetime. Huh. So the, the, it, it's like a game of telephone uh, to a certain extent here. It's, mm-hmm. it, you, the, the myth-making just compounds everything. So the, the individual it's about is still alive, but the stories about it have placed it in a magical mythic past. Well, the myth-making impulse is not just to make up a story and for the listener not just to repeat a story, but to repeat a story with your own changes and, and embellishments. Exactly. So for our purposes here, though, the, the idea if there's, if there's science occurring among the magical, then how are we to tell them apart in the stories that survive from the ancient past? Good question. On the other hand, Sagan and Shlowski point out uh, that there is also, for instance, the, the account of uh, 1786 first contact between the uh, Tlingit people of North America and French sailing vessels. Their, quote, oral rendition contains sufficient information for later reconstruction of the nature of the encounter. Uh, but also these stories contain myth, mythic descriptions of the ships as uh, – the, the, of the, the French ships as great black birds with white wings. So they say if you look at the myth, you see clear embellishments, but you can also put together historical details from them that we can verify as correct. Right. So Sagan argues that this means that, quote, under certain circumstances, a brief contact with an alien civilization will be recorded in a reconstructable manner. Uh, However, he drives home that it needs to be, first of all, committed to written records soon after the event. It has to be the – it has to result in major changes for the contacted people, so not our Life of Brian example where nothing is really affected. Uh Uh, And then also the contactors can't be attempting attempting to disguise themselves. So the aliens can't be – 
pretending to be humans or that's going to throw everything off, right? Right. Now, I know they wouldn't say that unless we can verify all that stuff, we can be sure that alien contact never happened in the past. They would just say that, you know, we're not justified in moving to that conclusion until we meet the following criteria. Right. And they also say that you just can't look for sky gods. It's just too obvious. The sky is just too obvious a place to position your gods. Uh Like the only other place to have your gods live is in the deep ocean or just in the ocean if you were a seafaring people. Or mountaintops. Or mountaintops, yeah. But just these are just obvious places for gods to be. You can't say, oh, here's a story about a a sky god, therefore ancient aliens. So instead, they say that what you need is a visit from the sky, a return to the sky, and a gift of knowledge or technology. Now, I I would charge that that might even be too broad uh, based on some of the uh, culture bearer motifs that I mentioned earlier. I would agree with that. So this was a 1966 book. Uh, So it came out before Chariots of the Gods uh, set the world on fire. Uh, Mm -hmm. So he's not responding in this book to specific evidence presented by by, uh, uh, von Donneken. But uh, he does talk briefly about some evidence that was brought up, particularly by Soviet uh, ethnologist M.M. Agrist. And... He just drives home that, yeah, these you, you have these cases for uh, past cultures encountering uh, interstellar society, but that there are just ultimately no known alien artifacts uh, that that are just definitely connected with this with such a visit. There's just no hard evidence, right. but the the authors do offer one possible example from ancient Sumer that they think might be a good starting point if you're going to consider uh, examples of potential ancient alien contact. Yeah, so they say we don't have any hard evidence, but we need at least a framework for how to examine ancient literature and stories and stuff to see if they meet the grade, if they're actually worth considering. And they give this example of one that is maybe worth considering as an example of alien contact, not not necessarily as in evidence, but just worth looking at. So the story relates to the origin of the Sumerian civilization. Uh, Sumer is one of the most ancient civilizations known on planet Earth, dating back to roughly the 5th millennium BCE. Uh, these these versions of this one story can all be traced back to one Berossus, a priest of Bel Marduk in Babylon during the time of Alexander the Great. And supposedly Berossus had access to ancient cuneiform and pictographic records from thousands of years before his time. And there are multiple translations and retellings of Berossus. And the authors of, uh, of this book quote three passages about Berossus and his writings at length. So I'll try to summarize. Uh, first, according to Alexander Polyhistor, Berossus is giving a summary of the history and geography of Babylon with its native plants and crops and its neighboring peoples and so forth. And he comes to speak of beings variously known as Apkalu and as uh, Berossus himself calls the first one of these creatures Oanis or Oanis or Adapa. And Berossus tells that at the time in ancient Babylon, there were men of many nations who were yet uncivilized and, quote, lived without rule and order like the beasts of the field. But then something happened. Quote, in the first year, there made its appearance from a part of the Persian Gulf which bordered upon Babylonia, an animal endowed with reason who was called Oanes. The whole body of the animal was like that of a fish and had under a fish's head another head and also feet below, similar to those of a man, subjoined to the fish's tail. 
His voice, too, and language was articulate and human, and a representation of him is preserved even to this day. Robert, I got Ooh. a picture here, at least one picture of Oanes. Oh, wow. So the, the, the picture of Oanes uh, just kind of looks like a fish man, which I'm definitely into. But that description with the double faces, uh, uh-huh. that, that, is, that is creepy. It really reminds me of some stuff that uh, R. Scott Baker plays with in his, um, his second apocalypse saga, uh, which does involve a sort of ancient alien uh, motif within a, a fantasy world. Oh, yeah? Interesting. Uh, I got more. Quote, This being, in the daytime used to converse with men, but took no food at that season, and he gave them an insight into letters and sciences and every kind of art. He taught them to construct houses, to found temples, to compile laws, and explained to them the principles of geometrical knowledge. He made them distinguish the seeds of the earth and showed them how to collect fruits. In short, he instructed them in everything which could tend to soften manners and humanize mankind. From that time, so universal were his instructions, nothing material has been added by way of improvement. When the sun set, it was the custom of this being to plunge again into the sea and abide all night in the deep, for he was amphibious. Oh, wow. And then also, quote, After this, there appeared other animals, like Oannes, of which Barossus promises to give an account when he comes to the history of the kings. And then according to uh, an ancient writer known, uh, known as Abidness, uh, he's giving an account of the uh, – Barossus is giving an account of the kings of ancient Mesopotamia and he mentions in passing Oannes and other, quote, double-shaped personages who came out of the water at various points in history. Also, Apollodorus gives an account of this history mentioning that fishmen appear out of the Persian Gulf at various points throughout history and Alexander Polyhistor, the source of the first – version of the story, uh, tells a version of the common flood myth with a king of ancient Sumer being warned by the gods of a coming flood catastrophe, and he's told how to preserve his himself and civilization to survive it. So according to these ancient accounts, Sumerian civilization was not the invention of humans, but a gift bestowed and guided by several waves of semi-humanoid fish-like visitors. Kind of interesting. Oh, Yeah. Now, this may have once been more impressive evidence at a time when many archaeologists believe Sumerian civilization sort of sprang up out of nowhere at the time the myths describe. The authors of the book now note that it seems there was probably a more gradual technological and cultural evolution to the first Sumerian cities. It is interesting to think that this same – the same kind of questions we might ask today like, ooh, how did bread – how did they ever figure that out? Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, or, ooh, making fire that – what was it like when, when somebody discovered this? Like even in ancient times, I'm imagining, you could still have someone that might think, wow, I just don't see how anyone figured this out. It must have been fish people. Right. It's not like they knew who first drank milk out of a cow. Yeah. Right? They needed a myth for that too. Yeah. Um, so the authors also point out interesting features of Sumerian pictographic art on cylinder seals, which show mysterious symbols that appear like they could be representations of solar systems. So there will be a symbol where there's like a central sphere with rays appearing to come out of it and it's being circled by smaller spheres. The idea of planets circling a sun, of course, wouldn't catch on until centuries later. And more interestingly, there are images of this type with different numbers of planets that seem to be associated with different gods, almost suggesting that it's like, okay, this god came from this solar system and this other god came from this other solar system. Uh, However, as fun as it can be to draw connections 
ends like this, the authors stress that we should not get carried away. Quote, These cylinder seals may be nothing more than the experiments of the ancient unconscious mind to understand and portray a sometimes incomprehensible, sometimes hostile environment. The stories of the Apkalu may have been made out of whole cloth, perhaps as late as Babylonian times, perhaps by Barossus himself. Sumerian society may have developed gradually over many thousands of years. In any event, a completely convincing demonstration of past contact with an extraterrestrial civilization will always be difficult to provide on textual grounds alone. But stories like the Oannes legend and representations especially of the earliest civilizations on the Earth deserve much more critical studies than have been performed heretofore, with the possibility of direct contact with an extraterrestrial civilization as one of the many possible alternative interpretations. So they're saying it's a high bar. You know, if Mm -hmm. you're going to try to go from ancient textual evidence and just like storytelling to, okay, aliens came here, it's going to be a really high bar to jump over, right? Yeah. But we should at least be open to the idea that such contact could have possibly happened and have a good idea of what evidence for it would look like. Yeah, so they they summarized that given the numbers they discussed, it's possible that Earth has been visited maybe many times, maybe by numerous galactic civilizations, even during geologic time, uh, and that they might have a base of operations within our solar system. So, and they point out that the moon makes the most sense here, uh, just as Arthur C. Clarke explored uh, in his science fiction, specifically 2001. We should stress again, appears to be no evidence of that. No, yeah, no, no evidence, but... But basically, they're saying like, all right, somebody comes through here. They mm-hmm. see, oh, there's something interesting going on in this earth. But we're important aliens. We have things to do. Right. We can't hang out around here and watch. We can't wait for it to get interesting. Let's leave something behind. So but, we leave Larry. Yeah, let's leave Larry. Uh, Larry. But we don't want to leave Larry in plain sight because they're really looking at the stars a lot and they're writing things down. Uh, I guess we're going to have to put it on the other side of the moon just to keep it under wraps. Uh, <laughs> but now we've surveyed the other side of the moon and no Larry so far. Yeah. So, so you know, they'll need to they, – they say that, yeah, you, they, would, they might want to create an automated system to keep track of technological developments on Earth because that thousand-year uh, interval, it, it wouldn't be enough to avoid self-annihilation incidents. You know, like, they don't want to miss anything. You don't want to come back a thousand years later and it's like, oh, those, what happened to those ape creatures? Oh, they discovered nuclear weapons. Oh, man, so. they're gone already and we missed it. Now they also point out that the other thing to keep in mind is that if – if, a, if extraterrestrials wanted to contact us, they wouldn't necessarily need to show up and do it. They could right. simply transmit a message. And certainly the, the, the work of, of SETI uh, has revolved around that. Like, let's listen. Let's see if there are signals coming. That seems to be a far more plausible way for uh, first contact to occur. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people, when they imagine first contact happening, they think we're going to be looking at the aliens face to face. I'd say there are at least two things more likely than that. Number one is that, of course, we would get their electromagnetic signals Mm -hmm. first. But also still more likely than encountering them face to face is simply encountering their technology in person. Yeah. Their their, uh, uncrewed probes. Now, the good news uh, the authors present here is that an advanced civilization like this wouldn't have to enslave us or eat us. Good. Because they would probably be beyond that. Uh, however, you so, could, so the Cthulhu theory is off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that one's off the table. Maybe. But then the, the, when you get into questions of religious or cultural um, conversion, well, we can't really rule that out. The other uh, possibility is that perhaps humans have some unique talent that aliens would require, even if it's just mere amusement. 
Uh, or they might just want to crush us to prevent us from posing a threat. Just say, oh, well, they, they, they have promised. They have spunk, these humans. We need to cut that out. Uh, or, or also, even worse, they could, there could be something uh, that they call the cockroach response, which is simply, it's different. We better kill it. But then again, if it hasn't happened already, then, then maybe we're safe. Yeah. <laughs> now, again, that book came out before Chariots of the Gods. Uh, Sagan definitely lived long enough to reconsider some of this and to, and to sort of revisit the idea of ancient aliens in light of the ancient alien um, uh, madness, I guess you could say, that kind of gripped uh, the culture. Okay, let's hear it. Yeah, so he, he wrote about it, uh, this time solo, in the 1979 book, uh, Broca's Brain, Reflections on the Romance of Science. Okay. He wrote that he believed that those excited by ancient alien speculation, you know, they're generally motivated by sincere, scientific, and occasionally religious feelings. That, you know, their, their passion for science is real, but, quote, for many people, the shoddily thought out doctrines of borderline science are the closest approximation to comprehensible science readily available. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is, yeah, you're scientifically curious, but then where do you go to get your information? Like you turn on the TV and if you're presented with in search of, if you're presented with ancient aliens, then that is what is going to feed your hunger. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you see people who are attracted to pseudoscience or people who have not had the right kind of exposure to how inspiring real science can be. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or for instance, how inspiring real archaeology can be, how, yeah. how legitimate uh, studies of mythology, uh, how, how they can uh, inspire us. So he, most of his criticism is really not leveled at people who enjoy it or, or buy into it, but rather those – certainly those who peddle it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he – uh, he, he responds broadly to some of the evidence in Chariots of the Gods and points out that, quote, in every case, the artifacts in question have plausible and much simpler explanations. I'd agree with that. Our ancestors were no dummies. They may have lacked high technology, but they were as smart as we. And they sometimes combined dedication, intelligence, and hard work to produce results that impress even us. Sagan's killing it. Yeah. He also pointed out that uh, AAS may have remained a popular idea in Russia at the time because it presented religious ideas within a scientific framework. So if you're in a communist state that's sort of got an anti-religious position but you've still got a religious disposition, you Mm -hmm. want to believe in mythological types of ideas. But it's not cool to, say, be a Christian or anything like that anymore. You could be essentially of the ancient aliens religion. Right, yeah. It is quasi-religious at least. He also speculated – Uh, That the interest in UFOs and ancient astronauts, quote, seems at least partially the result of unfulfilled religious needs. So, again, you have tales of wise, powerful, benign humanoid entities that attend to the human race. And this is an idea that definitely ends up uh, becoming central to a number of different UFO uh, new religions. Uh, The idea that the aliens will save us from ourselves, that the aliens have an answer to our essentially our religious needs. And he, he also mentions that, that he'd given the idea of, of ancient aliens far, far more attention than he cared to think about and that he loved the idea. Yeah. But, but you know, as you might expect Sagan to, I mean, clearly he didn't write about it uh, previously and in this volume because he thought it was just ridiculous and above consideration. No, clearly Sagan doesn't like hate this and want to crush it. He just wants to be responsible when entertaining the idea. Yeah, he's, but he says that the, the supposed evidence rarely 
rarely requires more than just passing attention. Quote, in the long litany of ancient astronaut pop archaeology, the cases of apparent interest have perfectly reasonable alternative explanations or have been misreported or are simple uh, prevarications, hoaxes, and distortions. And then he makes these final points. He says if if an advanced alien civilization had really wanted to leave a calling card, there would be no question. They could have left a metal artifact that due to uh, elemental composition would have clearly been from beyond. Yeah. Or, but, I mean, yeah, they could have left a silicon semiconductor chip. Yeah, yeah. They could have left a, a mathematical proof as a calling card. There, there are various right. things they Here, yeah, could have done. Here's Fermat's last theorem. Yeah. yeah, but but they didn't. They didn't leave any of these things. This book, uh, Broca's Brain, Reflections on the Romance of Science, this is still in print. You can you can definitely obtain a copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would advise anyone who's interested to check it out because he does go into greater detail on some of the arguments for uh, AAS, namely the uh, serious mystery of the Dogon people. Uh, it's all very interesting. We don't really have time to discuss it here, but uh, the book is out there. Sagan's writing is always a joy. Uh, so I in- invite everyone to check it out. So I'd say my takeaway at the end of this is that there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea that Earth may have been visited by aliens at some point. It's possible for all we know. Uh, There's nothing wrong with playing with speculation or looking for evidence there. But don't get carried away. Don't let it become your religion and don't don't lower your standard of evidence just because it's a cool idea and you want it to be true. Yeah, I agree. Like – don't make it your religion. But if you do make it your religion, just be open about the fact that you've made it your religion. Right. That's fine too. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't make it your religion and then pretend it's science yes. and try to convince people. One last thing. I want to test your intuitions okay. uh, on something. Me or just the general audience? Just you. I mean okay. the audience can play too. Play, okay. play along at home. But Robert, I want to think uh, about ranking some probabilities. So let's say you're in a scenario where you find out archaeologists have discovered a tomb in the Nile Valley with multiple lines of evidence independently confirming to every major archaeologist's satisfaction that the tomb has remained buried and undisturbed since 2500 BCE at the latest. And also, inside the tomb, they discover a clay jar containing silicon semiconductor chips and, say, lithium-ion batteries. All other things being equal, what do you think would be the ranking of the most likely interpretations of this? Would it be that there was ancient lost technology, right, that some ancient Egyptians figured out how to make these inventions, semiconductor chips and batteries, and somehow this is the first we're finding out about this capability of theirs? Or ancient aliens, aliens came and brought this or taught humans how to make it and it was lost, or they just, you know, shared a few trinkets, or time travel, or all the experts are wrong and this is some kind of hoax, well, I have to throw out time travel because yeah. that definitely breaks uh, our understanding of, of cosmos. I, I was going to say the same. I think I actually rank time travel below ancient aliens. Oh, yeah. And I would – I can see where though – I can see where someone would be more inclined for ancient aliens over the, the two remaining options simply because if you go to ancient aliens, then you kind of have an out. Mm-hmm. You don't have to admit that, oh, well – we simply missed it in the in the uh, in the archaeological uh, record. We just somehow missed the fact that the ancient Egyptians developed uh, batteries. Yeah, it's a tough question, actually, knowing how to rank these other ones. I, I think for me, the top option would be a tie between all all the experts are wrong, and it's some kind of hoax that's been very cleverly designed to fool all the experts. The, the hoax is really the place I think I would go. Yeah. first because it's just. 
it seems so outrageous. Like it, it, it's too much of a leap of faith to think aliens. Like time travel is is impossible as we understand uh, the inner workings of the universe. And then the idea that we simply missed all record of this technology also mm. seems unlikely. Lost technology is very hard to hard to believe because of the context, right? Um, that technology doesn't come to exist in a vacuum but comes as a result of other technologies. Mm -hmm. So if you suddenly found lithium-ion batteries and silicon semiconductor chips in ancient Egypt, it wouldn't just be that like, wow, how'd they figure out how to make those? They would be missing many, many steps along the chain of technological progress that would lead you to be able to make those. So you'd have to assume not just that but you'd have to assume the step before it and before that and before that, like all the metal working and all the fine machining and machining tolerances and things like that. Yeah, it's like if you suddenly found out that your uh, significant other was a drug lord, you know, yeah. and, would, and there was <laughs> and you would say, how did I not know they were a drug lord? Like you would think there would be there would be other steps up to becoming a drug lord. Right. I would have been surprised at something way earlier in the chain of this yeah. progression. Yeah. So that's hard to entertain, too. But I, I don't know. I, I think maybe I'd probably go with hoax first and then maybe it's hard to decide whether ancient aliens or lost technology is a better Ooh, is a better, is, it's a better answer one. there. Yeah, because one of those those answers at least has an answer built into it mm -hmm. for why there's no evidence of its development and construction or its uh, travel beyond that region. Like because it's simply an alien dropped it. But in any case, I think clever hoax beats the other two. Oh, definitely. Unfortunately. Definitely. And it's sad. Like that's the sad answer. Nobody yeah. wants that to be the answer to their either their great archaeological find or their unique insight into some bit of existing mythological or archaeological evidence. But I would have to wonder. We'd at least do an episode on it. We'd, we'd try to give it a fair shake, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. So there you have it. Again, we did not have time uh, here to discuss every – example that is often brought up as uh, as potential evidence for ancient aliens, uh, though many of them are, are just fascinating in their own right. I think one or two we've discussed on the show before, like the idea that uh, – that uh, that the Hindu epics describe the use of nuclear superweapons. Mm -hmm. It's a fabulous concept, but we just didn't have time to get into it today. But again, there is ultimately no evidence for 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 that being true. I agree. Certainly, no physical evidence, which is what the the real standard would be. Even with physical evidence, as we've said, it would be hard to know exactly what to make what to make of it. And with all this uh, literary and artistic evidence that's heavily based on interpretation, you've got all the problems that we, we discussed with Sagan and trying to make sense of what's this story from ancient Sumer about. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's a hard hill to climb up if you want to say that there were ancient aliens. But if you must climb that hill, do your best to do it in a responsible, skeptical, evidence-based way. Yeah, give or it, certainly give it your best shot. Go wild within the realms of fiction. Again, I hope yeah. that we uh, – I hope we keep getting great uh, ancient astronaut fiction because I can't get enough of it. Right. So there you have it. Uh, hey, if you want more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, then head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the past episodes that we've uh, recorded. You'll also find links out to various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, whatever the kids are using these days. Uh, and hey, as always, if you want to support this show, a great way to do it is to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tar. 
Kari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us and let us know your feedback on this this episode or any other, or just to say hi, let us know who you are, where you listen to the show from, uh, what got you into it, or suggest a topic for future episodes, any of that stuff, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.